Lord God, it is good to sing the praises of your dear Son. We thank you that he is your word, that you have spoken to us in him, that you save us in him. And now as we turn to as we return to our study of your written word, we thank you for it. And we pray that as these words carry, that we'll be looking at, carry every indication of been written in haste and excitement and have now been poured poured over for 2,000 years by godly men and women and by some ungodly men and women too, that we may catch again the meaning, the excitement, the passion and the experience of which the Apostle speaks. Amen. Please be seated. There are many different kinds of people in this world. In case you haven't noticed it, there are big ones and small ones, fat ones and thin ones, tall ones and short ones, bright ones and dull ones, Happy ones and sad ones, rich ones, poor ones, old ones, young ones, black ones, white ones, Jewish ones, and Gentile ones. And so we could go on. But for the Apostle Paul, it comes down in the end to to just two kinds of people, two groups of people, virtually two races, two humanities. At the head of each of these two humanities stands a representative, and their names are Adam and Christ. Adam stands at the head of the old humanity, and Christ stands at the head of a new humanity. And each one of us, and each person who has ever lived, belongs with one or other In God's sight, said the 17th century Christian Thomas Goodwin, in God's sight there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And these two men have all other men hanging at their belts. If you will please uh, open up your Bibles one more time to Romans chapter 5, and that was page 1132 in the church Bibles, we will have a look together at what Paul has to say in this passage about Adam and those who are in him and Christ and those who are in him. This is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Perhaps I can just point out, since we are picking up this series in uh, Romans after a break, that as Alan has already um, uh, pointed out to us, that the word therefore keeps cropping up and also, of course, at the beginning of this passage. And if I can just point out to you that in the first half of chapter 5, Paul has been talking about we. We, himself and his Roman readers, or we, Jews and Gentiles. But now there's no mention of we or of Jews and Gentiles in this passage. In the second half of the chapter, it it is all. 
It is everyone. There is something universal, something global going on in this passage which, which we mustn't miss. And which makes this passage, in a way, a kind of a hinge or a linchpin for the whole of this great letter to the Romans. Everything has been leading up to this, and then Paul will pull away from this, picking up some of the themes which are within this section in embryonic form. But now back to my plan, which is to talk to you about Adam and those who are in him, and then Christ and those who are in Christ. Firstly, then, what this passage has to say to us about Adam. Verse 12, if you'll kindly look at that with me, verse 12 takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, to the story of Adam in the garden and his eating of the forbidden fruit. It's a well-known story. I don't need to go through it with you in detail again, I'm sure. But here is a man created by God and like God and for God, but he rebels against God. And this is a hugely significant act of disobedience. This is not just an oops moment. This is not merely the unwise choice to eat the wrong kind of fruit. It is a deliberately defiant act. It has, if you like, something of the symbolism of a woman taking off her wedding ring and hurling it across the, across the room at her husband. It's an act of treason, a unilateral declaration of independence. It's what uh, Don Carson calls the de-godding of God, to have so deliberately defied God in that way. And Paul's point in this section is that Adam did not merely act merely as a private person, but as the head and representative of us all. Adam's sin brought down the entire human race. Adam rebelled from God, against God and was expelled from the garden, and he took everyone else with him. And there's a pattern throughout um, uh, Genesis from chapter 3 right up to to, to chapter 11 of moving further and further away from God, uh, symbolized geographically by moving further and further east. Adam's one act of disobedience has polluted the river of humanity at its source. It isn't just that you and I commit individual sins, some worse than others, but that we are members of a fallen race. When Adam sinned, Paul says, we sinned. That's one act of disobedience for a man, one giant catastrophe for mankind. Now, God had said to Adam... If you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely die. And die he did. Genesis chapter 5 contains a litany of people who lived a very, very long time. But what happened to them in the end? Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. 
Mahulalel lived 895 years, and then he died. Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. There are some seriously big numbers here, some seriously long lives, but the outcome was the same in every case. So, sin entered by one man and then spread to all. And as a result, death entered and spread to all. We may well feel uneasy at being lumped together in this way with Adam, whom we've never known or even met. But then we live in a perversely individualistic age. As the late F.F. Bruce writes, because we live in separate bodies, we tend to think that all other aspects of our personality are equally separate and self-contained, but they are not. But even we, in our post-enlightenment Western so-called civilization, with its focus on the individual, can have some understanding of human solidarity and corporate responsibility. We can understand that when the captain of a cricket team decides to walk off the pitch in protest against dodgy umpiring, the whole team follows. We can understand when the chief executive fouls up the finances, the whole company goes into receivership. We can understand that when the president of a a country declares war, the whole nation is at war. And Paul would have us understand that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam died, we died. Whether our personal sins are few or many, relatively trivial or deeply heinous, we are by nature members of Adam's fallen race. In Adam, we are shipwrecked, mortally wounded, without hope, and without God in the world. This, of course, is serious stuff, isn't it? But it's not the only thing taught in this passage, and it's not even the main thing. There hangs in the chapel of King's College in Cambridge a celebrated painting by Rubens. It's called The Adoration of the Magi. In the year uh, 1974, vandals broke in and defaced it by daubing three very large letters on it, the the letters I-R-A. The following day, the painting was taken down and a notice was put up in its place. The notice simply said this. It is believed that this painting can be restored to its original condition. Or as one of our hymn writers has put it in relation to the possibility of restoration from the sin and the death of Adam. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And so we turn from the 
catastrophic state that Adam leaves his progeny, progeny in to Christ and his new humanity. Paul tells us in verse 14 of our passage that Adam was a pattern or type of Christ. Just as Adam stands at the head of one section of humanity as their representative, so Christ stands at the head of another vast section of the human race as their representative. And in each case, one act has massive consequences. So far, Adam and Christ are similar, but that's where the similarity ends. Everything else that Paul has to say about Adam and Christ is dissimilar, is by way of contrast. Will you please notice in verse 15, the gift of Christ is not like the trespass of Adam. Let's run through one or two of these contrasts between the gift and the trespass. One contrast is, of course, that whereas Adam's act was one of disobedience, Christ's was an act of obedience. As Paul himself puts it in Romans chapter, in, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient right up to death, even death on a cross. Another contrast is that whereas Adam led all who follow him into condemnation and death, Christ leads all who follow him into acquittal and into life. Verse 18 tells us the result of Christ's one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. And another contrast is that the penalty for Adam's sin was deserved. The gift of God in Christ is undeserved. Four times in this passage, Paul insists that God's gift of life comes from his overflowing grace, his unmerited favour. So there are differences there, uh, contrast in the nature of what Adam has done and what Christ has done. But there is not only a contrast in nature but here, but also a contrast in scale. The gift is not only unlike the trespass, the gift is also much more than the trespass. Will you please notice what Paul says in verse 15? He uses these words of the gift of Christ. How much more? And he repeats it. He really wants to emphasize it. Bishop Tom Wright invites us to imagine a statue that has been ruined by vandals, but then rebuilt, stronger and much more impressive than before. The new is not, doesn't simply replace the old, but it's better and more lasting. And he uh, explains the main point in this whole passage is that what God has done in the one man, Jesus the Messiah, is far, far more than simply putting the human race back where it was before the arrival of sin. The statue has been remade, and it is far more splendid than before. It isn't just a case of what they knocked down, God will put back up. 
nor is it a case of what they did wickedly, God will do graciously. God has done far, far more. So let me try to suggest to you what, that what we have gained in Christ is far, far more in the following kinds of ways. It is more numerous, it is more certain, and it's more victorious than anything that we lost in Adam. Firstly then, the sins that have been forgiven in Christ are more numerous than those that were condemned in Adam. Condemnation and death, Paul teaches here, entered the world because of the one sin of the one man, Adam. But God's gift of justification, that is to say acquittal, declaring us to be in the right, and life covers innumerable sins committed by untold multitudes of people. Add up, begin to add up, if you, if you can, the sins great and small that you have committed from time to time. Multiply that by the number of people who have ever lived. And God's grace is sufficient, more than sufficient for all of those. Professor Cranfield explains as follows, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. This is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. Or think, while we're thinking of numbers covered by God's free grace in Christ, think back to God's promise to Abraham, as recorded in the later, uh, slightly later chapters of Genesis. Abraham, you will recall, was to become the father of many nations. Through him, in fact, all nations of the earth would be blessed. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the the sand on the seashore. Or think of the description of the redeemed in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 we see a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And everyone a forgiven sinner. The sins that have been forgiven in Christ are far more numerous than those that were condemned in Adam. But secondly, the life that we have inherited in Christ is more certain than the death that we inherited in Adam. This passage itself hints at God's cosmic purpose in the scheme of redemption and in permitting sin, evil, and suffering in the first place. The entrance of sin, you see, did not catch God out. The coming of Jesus the Saviour was not an afterthought. This was God's plan all along. To quote once again from Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, which speaks of the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. God had planned that sacrifice for sin all along. 
God is determined, always has been determined, to have a people of his own, a people of his, of his praise, a people to freely love and serve him. Jesus, according to the last verse of Ephesians chapter 1, fills all things in all ways, and yet he does not consider himself complete unless he has his bride, his church, his new humanity with him. The life we have inherited in Christ is more certain than the death that we inherited in Adam. But now thirdly, the reign in life that we have in Christ is more victorious than the reign of death that was ours in Adam. It is verse 17 in our passage that talks about the reign of death through Adam. And we might expect Paul to contrast this with the reign of life through Christ. That's a nice balance. Death reigns, but now life reigns. But the fact But in fact, what Paul says is not that life will reign, but that we shall reign. We who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you see there again a much more to what Christ offers offers and replaces This reigning in and with Christ, Paul will expand on, especially in the second half of of the great chapter 8 of Romans, where in verse 37 he declares that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we might well ask ourselves for the time being if we are living like those as those who are destined to reign in life. Or are we perhaps sometimes more like those people that you hear of from time to time who lived and died in absolute poverty and destitution even though they had a fortune in the bank that they never touched? More numerous, more certain, more victorious is the work of Christ for his new humanity. No wonder the hymn writer Isaac Watts teaches us to sing, In him, in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. So to which humanity do we belong? Do we line up with Adam and follow him through the wide gate and down the broad road that leads to destruction? Or have we received God's free gift of acquittal and life in Jesus Christ? This is truly a message for all people in all places and at all times. No sins too numerous or too great that Jesus Christ, the second and last Adam, cannot put right and cannot rectify and restore the damage caused by the first Adam. And all this for the princely sum of, well, the invoice has already already been stamped, hasn't it? Paid in full. It is, as verse 17 puts it, simply a gift to be received. Sin conquered. Death defeated. Ah, yes, you say. But hasn't Paul forgotten something? Doesn't he know that I still sin daily? 
And doesn't he realize that one day I too must die? No, he hasn't forgotten. It is, in fact, these very problems that Paul will now turn to in the next three chapters, six, seven, and eight. And I look forward to seeing you again in chapter eight. Let us pray. Gracious God, is it really as simple as this? That, belong to, that we belong to one humanity or to another? And is this all so free that we must simply leave aside our pride and our efforts to commend ourselves to you and simply stretch out a hand and receive your free gift and all of these benefits and blessings and boons that come with it? Well, Lord, we would take you at your word and we'd ask your Holy Spirit to work deeply in our hearts that we may rest content and assured that we belong with Christ and his new humanity. And may we live, begin to live and continue to live as the princes and princesses that he has made us from this day forward. Amen.